Matthew 5. As we continue through our series in the Gospel of Matthew entitled, Not of This World. And this morning we're going to be looking at verses 21 through 48 of Matthew chapter 5. And I'm not going to read all of them. I'm going to read just portions of this. And I'm going to be teaching this morning this section, I would think, probably in a way that you've never heard it taught before. I, I just felt like God gave me an, in, an insight into this that um, I really wanted to bring to you this morning in a way that would be uh, uniquely different, probably from any way that I know that I've ever taught it, and perhaps any way that you've heard it before. And I'm really trusting that God will do something really significant uh, in, in our hearts this morning and, and, and we're living in, in an important time. So it's important that, that we are attentive to the voice of God right now in our lives, right? And in this season of life and this time that we're living in the world, and so we don't come casually to these times together. We take it very serious, and we believe that God will speak to us. We believe that, that in the end days that there's going to be a great need to be able to, to discern the voice in the heart of God. And so I trust that the Lord will, will speak to us today. I'm going to begin reading in verse 21. I'm only going to read, as I said, some portions of each of these, of this text. And I want to begin in verse 21 of Matthew 5, the words of the Lord Jesus. And he says, You have heard that it was said of those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. In verse 27, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Verse 31, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Verse 33. Again, you have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool. Verse 38, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Verse 43, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Father, in the name of Jesus this morning, Spirit of God, speak to us. 
teach us. Lord, open our hearts to understand anew these words. Set free today hearts. Cause there to be a renewal of our minds by the Spirit of God through the Word of God today. And we know, Lord, that that is your intention, that is your gracious love to do that very thing. So we have faith this morning that the Word of God is living and active and that, Lord, you will be able to decide, to divide between the intent and the purposes of our hearts and desires of them. And so we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So I've entitled this morning's teaching, A Greater Love, A Greater Love. And I'm going to be doing a flyover of these verses. And I want to just begin by saying that if there was ever a contrast between the old creation and the new creation in Scripture, it is this section of the Sermon on the Mount. And you know what we've been teaching on the life of what it means to be now in the kingdom of God, that we are not of this world, that we've been born now into this new life in Christ. And in fact, Paul teaches us by the revelation that he'd received that it, it's, it's a new beginning for mankind. That when Jesus Christ came to earth and began anew as a man, he began for all men a new existence as a human being. And we've been born now by the same spirit. and We've been born again by the same life. And we have been born into a new creation life, a new creation order. And it may, there may not be a sharper contrast in Scripture than what I've just read in terms of the old and the new. Many commentators actually call this section of Scripture the second law in the sense that it was the second time that the law had been given. Moses gave the first law, and he did it on a mountain, coming down from a mountain. Jesus now speaks to his disciples and to the multitudes on a mountain. And in a sense, that's true. It is a second giving of a law. But the failure to properly understand the essence of what Jesus is saying right now could deny the very power and the intent of what Jesus was hoping to accomplish. If we misunderstand what Jesus is saying, we can completely undermine the very purpose he had in speaking what he spoke. And I want to say sadly that I think that's what usually happens. I think that we have taken these words of Jesus that I just read and we've distorted them and we've applied them and we've looked at them through the lenses of the old and not through the lenses of the new. And to very frankly misunderstand them will only lead to more frustration and more of the guilt that we already, many of us, deal with and much of the self-condemnation being continued that we struggle with. And I want to say there is another law that is now being introduced, but it is a new law. And it's a law that has within it an inherent life-giving force that is now at work in the life of the believer. Turn with me to Romans 7, and let's read a passage of Scripture in Romans 7 into Romans 8 that will help you understand what I'm trying to say. And remember the title, because it's applicable to the heart of all of this, a greater love, a greater love. I referred to this last Sunday. I want to read this portion, and I want to go into Romans 8. It's beginning in verse 15 of Romans 7. It's a familiar passage. 
speaking of a struggle that Paul is recording that he had had in his life. He says in verse 15 of Romans 7, I do not understand my own actions. Anybody relate? For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do not do what I want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, And remember, the flesh is the residue of the fallen nature. It's the residue of the old creation, of the old man, of Adam's Adam's nature that's still within us. He says, for what I, I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law, look at the word law, that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I do delight in the law of God in my inner man, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? From this body of death. Now, I said this last Sunday, and I want to stop here for a minute. This text is is very difficult to interpret. Many believe that it's talking about Paul's current experience, or many believe that it's talking about his past experience. I fall in that latter camp. I believe he's not talking about what he was currently experiencing, but what he had experienced before. Before he became a Christian, when he was a Pharisee, a righteous Pharisee, he knew the law of God better than most men would have ever known it, but he knew that that what he wanted to do, he could not do. And so he was recording this struggle that he had as a, listen, as a religious man, hoping to do what was right because he knew what he needed to do. But he couldn't do it. Because the more you try to obey the law out of your own effort, the more you find that you cannot do it. And what it does is it awakens that sinfulness in you. It causes the sinfulness to become very real. And so he's crying out in his heart. He's thinking back to what he felt, I believe, as a, as a Pharisee. And he cries out, who, wretched man that I am, in verse 24, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then he makes this statement. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. And then he says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And this is the statement. This is the key. This is the powerful statement for the law. Listen to the word, the law. Another law now is being introduced. The law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh, could not do. This is it. This is new creation life. God has done what the law, weakened by the sinful flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh, listen, in order that the righteous requirement of the law 
might be fulfilled in us. Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So Paul had learned. He had struggled with his flesh as a Pharisee. He had struggled wanting to do what was right, but only becoming increasingly aware of his tendency to sin, to lust, to covet, to lie, for pride, for greed. It was awakened by the fact that he knew that it was wrong to do. But he said, no, now there's a new law that's at work within me, and it is the law. Listen, the law of the spirit of life. And I want to say to you, this is the law that Jesus is introducing in the Sermon on the Mount. He is speaking. He's not using the same words as Paul. Paul would, by revelation, understand it some years later. But Jesus is speaking the same thought, the same heart. He's speaking the same truth. He is speaking it before Paul ever saw it, before Paul was even born again. He is speaking this truth of a new law, the law of the spirit of life. There has been something given to us now, another law that's true, and we have received it by grace through faith. It's the law of the spirit of life, and it set us free from the law of sin and death. Could this be what Jeremiah was speaking of when he prophesied in Jeremiah 31, 39? This is what he said. The days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand from the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband. Notice the word husband declares the Lord, because we'll refer to that again in a moment. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, listen, I will put my law within them. And I will write it on their hearts. The law of the spirit of life, Jeremiah prophesies in, Rome, in Jeremiah 31. So I want to say as we begin to look at this, these verses this morning that any focus now on the law's demands that lowers our sights, lowers our experience, and returns to a, a life of, of a religious obligation and an effort to somehow do the right thing to attain righteousness is to misunderstand the very teaching of Jesus Christ in this passage. It's to misunderstand the heart of the Christian experience. There has been a new law given, but it is the law of the spirit of life. It is not the law of the letter. Something has been written on the heart of a believer of the law of God. It is now at work from the inside out, not from the outside in. And that's what Jesus is teaching in these verses that we've just read. Very familiar verses. Very familiar verses that lead to more condemnation for much of the church. Honestly. And so the teaching is, no, listen, there is a greater love that now is at work that will set you free and will allow you to live this life because of the grace of God at work within you, not by your own human will and effort. It's a new life. It's a new law. Are you with me? So 
So six times there is this repeated pattern in the words that Jesus speaks now in these verses. And he does it repeatedly to drive home a point. Six times he says, you have heard it said, but I say to you. Six times. Not once, not twice. He doesn't assume it as he starts each new subject. He says it again and again and again and again and again and again and again. To draw this incredibly important contrast between the old and the new. It's as though the Lord is saying repeatedly, that was the life of the old creation under the kingdom of darkness, but this is now the life of the new creation in my kingdom of light and life. It's as though he is saying to the hearers, that was for you an unattainable standard because of the weakness of your flesh. But there is now a far greater power of life at work within you, if you would believe. It's as though he is saying, that is the one that you know you have failed to obey repeatedly, but obedience will now be the fruit of a new law that's at work within your heart by the Spirit of God. And so I'll say to our own hearts this morning, the message is very simple. Take your eyes off of yourself and put them on Christ. You have heard it said, but I say to you. So there are six areas here. I believe, and I'm just going to call them areas of human struggle that are common to all men. Six areas. He, he uses six things. Were they random? Were they just six things that popped into his mind? Or do they represent perhaps what is common to all men? And, and in a sense, they encapsulate all of human experience to some degree. I think it is that. I think these six things speak to the struggle that we all have as human beings. And they are these. Anger. Lust. Divorce. Truthfulness. Self-preservation. And revenge. These are the six things that Jesus now will speak to and draw a great contrast between how they used to think about them and how they needed to, in their minds, how they needed to perform in order to measure up to them. And now a new life, a new, a new a truth that is going to allow them to understand, no, there's a different way now to understand what has been said and what the meaning of these are. Each of these are in themselves a sermon, but I'm not going to address them in that way today. I'm going to look at them very quickly, individually, and I want to get to the greater truth behind them. But we have beaten ourselves up enough and beaten each other up enough with these six things. The Lord wants us to free us from shame and guilt. Amen. So that we can live. So that we can live freely. But I think we need to look quickly at each of them and the root issue behind each of them. The root issue in our own heart that leads us to these sins 
and then to see what the Word of God says regarding that root and how that root is pulled out by the grace of God and by the life of God working within us. We will see that there is a greater power and a greater expression of life that will set us free. And often it's the same for each of them. The the, the remedy is the same in many senses we'll see in a moment. But we'll look at them as much as we can in a specific way. He speaks, first of all, to this issue of anger. Anger. I'm sure in this room there are many of us who struggle with that. At least at certain periods of time, like on the road. Maybe in your home, maybe at work, I don't know. We all have issues where we... What is the root of anger? I don't know. I thought about this for a while. I think the root of anger is, there's probably many different roots. Fear, pain, frustration are common roots. Fear leads to anger. Pain leads to anger, frustration. But often anger that's directed outwardly has first been directed inwardly at our own hearts, at ourselves. We have been hurt. We've been violated. Maybe we have been put in a place of vulnerability. And in many cases, many of us feel we actually deserve what we're getting because we feel like we have not been good enough. We're bad people. So self-anger, anger directed inwardly, will first start within, at ourselves, and then it's outward usually. And I'm not a psychologist. I might be speaking through my hat here. But I'm just telling you that's from my own common sense what I feel. But anger is an issue with many people struggle with. What is Jesus telling us here? He, he says something that is powerful in this text, that to hate. He, he talks about, about murder, and he says, but even hatred is, is, is murder. And I thought about Cain and the root of his anger being his jealousy and the blow to his ego which led him to kill his brother Abel. What is the the answer to this? What is the greater power, the greater power of the Spirit of God working within us? I think very simply it is this. Listen to this. These are not profound, but they're amazingly profound. It is to trust in God's providence and to believe that God is actually working, God is actually working through the trials and tribulations of my life. To settle it in my heart that the difficulty, that the fact that maybe I've even been violated, been victimized somehow wrongly, unfairly, unjustly, even in that I must trust the goodness of God for my life. And that, as much as anything, will cut off the root of anger and hatred. One of the greatest examples in Scripture is the story of Joseph. Turn to Genesis 50 with me. I want to just read the words because I think they're so powerful. If there was anybody that had a good reason to be angry, it was Joseph, right? You guys know his story. As a young guy, he's thrown into a a pit by his older brothers. Now, 
Jackson and Jonas and Kino haven't thrown Judah into a pit yet. I'm sure they've. Yeah, then Ju- Judah's not dreaming yet too much. Actually, he had a dream. He got up this morning and he had a dream. He dreamed he had to go back to school. He was really bummed. <laughs> That's what it was. So Joseph gets thrown in a pit by his brothers. We know the story. He ends up in Egypt. He ends up in jail in Egypt. He ends up, he's got, he has this horrible life just because his brothers picked on him and were jealous of him and unkind. He ends up, though, being elevated by God into this position, just one below Pharaoh in all of Egypt. His brothers show up at his door because of a famine, not knowing that he was even alive, not even beginning to fathom that he could have still been alive. And they don't even recognize him because he was so different. He had changed. He was a man. He was now a a very prosperous man, a very powerful man. And they come to his door and they don't even recognize him. And he sees them and he knows who they are. And read what he says in verses 15 through 21 with me. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. Now, this is after they realized it was him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. See, God allows us to feel pain, to feel fear, to feel frustration, to feel hurt. In order to drive us to himself and to teach us that he is faithful and to teach us that he is a good God and that what he allows in our life will work for good, as hard as it is. We can live secure in a very, 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 very fallen world. We can live secure in a world filled with danger. And through these things of difficulty, God works humility in us. He works meekness in us. He weakens, listen, the self-life. Because the cross deals with us through our vulnerability, through our feeling unsafe, through our awareness that we are weak. The cross is working against the self-life to set us free from it. The law of the spirit of life is at work. And so Paul would write in Romans 5, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces proven character, and character produces hope. 
and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts, listen, through the Holy Spirit. By this inner working of the law of the spirit of life whom God has given to us. If the root of anger is frustration and pain and hurt and being violated and whatever, and self-hatred, the healing is this greater love of the faithfulness of God and of the healing of the cross and the security of knowing that God is with us and for us. Everything I'm going to say to you is not new for you. But I believe that God wants to teach us that it's true. And he wants us to take hold of it in our hearts. And we're going to have communion here in a few minutes. And I'm going to ask you, if, if, if you're struggling with one of these sin struggles, to, as we take communion, to believe that God is going to free you and help you. It won't happen instantly. I'm not promising that. But it's the renewing of the mind it's the renewing of how we think. It's the, it's the changing of our thinking processes, and it's, it's having our faith enlarged to believe yet, that, yes, not only is it possible, but it is highly probable that God will set me free because grace is at work in me. You cannot overcome anger through self-will because, honestly, usually it's deeper than that. Only God can do it. Amen. Lust. This word lust in Matthew is speaking of sexual desire. It's not the lust for something other than that. The context is sexual lust. And lust is a sexual desire that dishonors, listen, at its very root, it dishonors its object and it disregards God. It's a dishonoring of its object and a complete disregard for God. And so Paul would write in 1 Thessalonians 4.4, 4, he says that each one of you, he says, I pray that each one of you would know how to take a wife for himself, listen, in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the heathen who do not know God. And so I can learn what lust is through that one text that the opposite of it is holiness and honor. And the root of it is passion and dishonor and disregard for God. And it begins in the heart. It begins in the very center of a person's identity and will. And I know that from verse 28. Because he speaks of having lustful intent is already committing adultery within your heart. It begins in the heart. And so this is a key for all of us who struggle with lust. The answer is not trying to not lust through willpower. The answer is to have, listen, 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 an exclusive devotion to a greater love. The answer is not trying not to lust. 
It's not trying not to last. It's having an exclusive devotion to a greater love. Because the law of the spirit of life will fix our attention and our devotion on someone greater, the Lord Jesus Christ. And through the truth of the word of God and through our, our, our faith, believing, and through the renewing of the mind by the spirit of God, we find that suddenly, not suddenly, but through this process, the members of our body become dedicated to this greater love. The members of our body become dedicated to a greater love. I have an exclusive devotion to my wife. And because I have that exclusive devotion, I honor her. The only exclusive devotion that I have that is greater is to the Lord. As a single man or a single woman, your exclusive devotion devotion is to Jesus himself alone. You do not yet have any other exclusive devotion, nor should you. You cannot until you've come into covenant with that person. But that exclusive devotion to Jesus is enough. It is enough to free you from the power of lust. How do I know that? Because the word of God is teaching us that. Because Jesus is teaching us that the issue is the heart and the only answer for the heart is the grace of God by the Spirit of God at work within us. An exclusive devotion to a greater love. It's a greater motivating love. It's being totally secure. I think a lot of lust is a result of insecurity. It's not having a strong enough identity. It's, 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 It's not knowing really who we are. It's, it's, it's giving in to the struggle with, with you know, who, who really we are. Who am I? But being loved by God and knowing that we're loved by God and, be, and having this heart for him that is so, it's not perfect. We're never perfect. It's not as though it immediately disappears. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying the power of that exclusive devotion to Christ is enough to set you free from the power of lust. It really is. And I know in this room there are men that would testify to that truth, men who may have struggled with, and women who have struggled with lust and struggled with pornography, who will say to you, no, it is honor and it is regard for God that has set me free. It is love for God. It's honoring my wife and honoring my body and honoring God that has set me free from lust because there's a greater love that I have now than that. So quit beating yourself up. And pray that your love for Jesus will become so powerful that it will set you free. It will. Divorce. Why did Jesus throw this in? Because it's so destructive. And I don't know, maybe he just, well, I'm sure he did as God in the incarnation that he would know down the road how common it would be, how it would destroy families, how it would destroy homes, how it would destroy children, how it would destroy the men and the women who had experienced it. 
how many believers would live with the, the, the shame of it. And I'm not saying this today to put any more on us. I want to set, take that off of us. Divorce at its very root is abandoning the most precious covenant that a man can ever have apart from his covenant with God. It's to walk away from the most important covenant and the holiest and the most beautiful. And we know too well the roots of divorce. The roots of divorce are the self-life. It raises its ugly head in the most destructive of ways and says, feed me, feed me, feed me, feed me. Because of the incredible, powerful meaning of the joining of a man and a woman in covenant, it's no surprise how it is so under attack. The very foundation of marriage is under attack in our society. It's being redefined and distorted completely to the nth degree because marriage is such an important covenant. And that is the very essence and heart of marriage. It is that covenant that so accurately reflects God's covenantal love for his church. Now listen to this statement. But when the beauty of the bride and the beauty of marriage become our heart's vision, and with the understanding of the beauty of this covenant, a greater love will protect our hearts from the self-love that can even in its weakest moments and will in its weakest moments cause us to want to abandon that beautiful covenant of marriage. There may be no example of these six struggles that is more powerfully true of the fact that when we raise our sights to see the beauty of what it is that Jesus is holding up, it causes the, you have heard it said, to become less and less clear in, before our eyes. When the beauty of marriage captures our hearts, when the beauty of your bride captures your heart, husbands, Divorce is not ever in your heart or mind. When the beauty of what marriage is, when the beauty of your bride fills your heart, and women for your husband, and the love for him, and the honor of him, and the thankfulness for him, it protects your heart. Something greater, a greater love than the self, right? Jesus said in Matthew 19, because of the hardness of your heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. Because of the hardness of your hearts, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives because you were hurting them. You were divorcing them for the smallest things. You were driving them out of your homes. You were putting them into the streets. They were, they were left in shame to live their lives with shame because of the hardness of your hearts. And so Moses gave you permission to divorce them in a way that would not shame them. 
and would not leave them abandoned. But it was not to be so. There's a greater love that can fill your hearts and free this society from its rampant divorce. But you see, apart from Christ, it's, it's nearly impossible, isn't it, to know that love. And I believe that the answer for this simply is revelation and sacrificial love. These are the ingredients of the greater love in marriage. It's a revelation of the beauty of marriage and the revelation of the beauty of your bride because she represents the bride of Christ. We as the church are the bride. Your wife is a picture of being the bride. She is the bride of your bride, just as we as the church are his bride. Anger, lust, divorce, truthfulness, oaths, truthfulness. And I'm not going to spend as much time on these last three as I did the first three, so don't worry. To make an oath is really the fruit of unbelief regarding moral truth. 22%, Barna says, 22% of Americans do not believe there is such a thing as absolute truth. And when he did a survey of a born-again, quote-unquote, born-again Christians, 37% of born-again Christians did not believe in absolute truth. That's amazing. And only 22% in all of America believed that there was absolute truth. Oaths. What is Jesus speaking of when he speaks of these oaths? He's talking about truthfulness in the inner being. Negotiating with God. God, I'll do this for you if if you do this for me, or I swear that I will do this to another man, I swear I'll do this. And Jesus says, no, don't, don't. Yet all through the Old Testament, there are many different times when there are oaths given, and they were good and they were holy. But it's been, it had been perverted by the Pharisees to, the, the old creation had taken what God had intended to be a means of, of bringing a very godly sense of security, and it had been distorted because of the untruthfulness in the heart of man. It's an issue of truthfulness. They use oaths to add credibility to their statements, but their statements came from untruthful hearts. Because the Pharisees had reduced righteousness to a set of external behaviors. And those behaviors were nothing but filthy rags in the sight of God. Their oaths were no more reliable than a statement of a child who has his fingers crossed behind his back. Because in their hearts they were more interested in being believed than they were in being truthful. They were more interested in being believed than they were in being godly. And I think part of the reason that we today struggle in, in, in our own society with this reality is because we still believe in fate, we believe in fortune, we believe in chance, that somehow things are left to fate, they're left to good fortune, they're left to chance. And so we negotiate with God, we make promises to God that if God will do this, we will do that. How many of you have ever prayed in a time of crisis, God, please answer this prayer and then I will 
That's what Jesus is speaking to here. He's saying, don't ever do that. Because God already knows your heart. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. And become confident again, and I'm going to say this more than once, in the loving providence of God. Become confident and secure in the providence of God. Just let truthfulness come from your inner being because God is truth and because he wants us to be confident and secure in in his life at work within us. Anger, lust, divorce, truthfulness, self-preservation. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. While I was praying about this this week, listen to this carefully, please. I have said this more than once to somebody in a counseling setting. You need to set boundaries in your life. As I was praying this week, I felt the Spirit of God say to me, ask me this, do you think Jesus ever set boundaries? I don't think he did. Now, that doesn't mean that you allow or you evil to just be evil because he confronted evil. But I don't think Jesus ever set safe boundaries to protect his person. Self-preservation is a high value in America. And I know why. I understand it. I understand the need for it. I'm not stupid. But I'm telling you is that what Jesus is saying here is that self-preservation is a snare, ultimately, to the very heart of God and to the way of God. Jesus put himself out there Not to become a willing target and an object of evil. That's foolishness. But we have to be honest enough with ourselves to say that our first tendency is self-preservation at any cost. It's not to be inconvenienced in our time. It's not to be taken advantage of financially. It's not to be misrepresented in relationships. My first tendency is self-preservation in those areas of my life. Jesus is saying, no, no. Let yourself be taken advantage of. Go ahead and be misrepresented. Be inconvenienced for my sake, for someone else's sake. That's a greater love. It's a love of beyond myself. It's a love that does not have fear of being misunderstood or abused or wrongly dealt with. Does this make sense? Does it? I'm I'm not saying to be foolish and to become an object of evil. I'm not saying that. Because Jesus was not that, except when he went to the cross, he allowed himself to be. But what I'm saying is, is don't be so quick to set boundaries up in your life to preserve yourself. But allow something greater. And these are the words of Jesus. Freely you have received. What? Freely give. 
I think I told you the story where I gave my truck away when I was flat broke because the Lord told me to, to some guy that couldn't pay for it. And more than one person told me I was foolish. You've all done that many times in your life. I know you have. This is the heart of the new creation. It's to be free from the need for self-preservation. These are the words of John. Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desire of the flesh, the desire of the eyes, the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Anger, lust, divorce, truthfulness, self-preservation, and then revenge. Human struggles, human things that we all struggle with, revenge, a growing awareness with injustice is happening within our society. And so I want to mete out justice myself. Aren't you tired of injustice? Maybe unlike any of the other sin struggles that we've looked at in Jesus' names, this can actually have a root that is righteous. It's the, it's, the, it's the desire to see true justice, which is a righteous desire. The problem is, is that it's distorted by self-love. And it's distorted by impatience with God. That God is not dealing justly fast enough for my own liking. And society will never dispense true justice. But listen, we must wait on God. And that's what Jesus is teaching here. Ours is to love even those whom we consider to be enemies. Jesus said, a greater love is at work within us. And I think that what happens is that we see the true condition of men and we see them as God sees them. Kevin shared a story of that recently. Dean shared a story of that happening with him recently. Or you see the true condition of someone who at first you are repelled by, repulsed by, maybe even angered by their behavior. The spirit that you can see clearly is at work around or within them. But you see them as God sees them and your heart breaks for them. And compassion becomes a greater love. Amen? Than the need to somehow see them dealt with justly in that moment. Anger, lust, divorce, truthfulness, self-preservation, revenge. The root in almost all of them is self-love. And the answer to all of them is a greater love, a more exclusive love. Amen. Amen. Stand with me, please.
As we take communion together this morning, I want us to be very brutally honest to allow God to deal with us. Not in a sense of convicting of sin as much as in a sense of healing us and of freeing us and of restoring us and of giving us maybe new hope in an area of our lives. I've prayed this week that God would lift shame off of the church. I know that when Jesus stood on that mountain, he was not wanting to put more guilt on anybody that heard his words. People struggle already with guilt enough. Jesus was wanting to lift guilt off. He was wanting to lift shame off. And he was saying to them, there's something new at work that is a greater life, a greater power than what you've heard in the past. And if we can wrap our hearts and minds around it and believe in it and receive it for ourselves, God will do something that I believe is hugely important to set us free. I'm sure that every one of us struggle at one point with some of these, more than one, maybe. Maybe all of them at some point. Let's believe God today through the taking of communion that grace will be imparted to us to be healed. Have shame lifted off. Rather than taking communion all together, what I'd like for us to do is I'd like you to come up and take it. And then I'd like each of us just to take a couple of minutes and just get before the Lord alone, not with anyone else. And just allow God to speak to us and to do some business with us in, in the area of healing us, of freeing us, of restoring us cleansing us, encouraging us in an area that maybe we have lived with for years and years and years. You know the law. You have heard it said many times from many pulpits. But I say to you today, there is a greater love that will set you free. There has to be something more and there is, we know. If Christianity is true, there has to be something more. And I'm praying for my own heart, and I'm praying for my brothers and sisters this morning that we would encounter you, the living God, through the truth of your word, even my inability, Lord, to maybe state it well enough or clear enough, you are able by your spirit to bring the truth of it home to our hearts. I pray, Father, in the name of Jesus, that you would wipe shame off of us in guilt, condemnation, Thanks be to God through Christ Jesus. The law of the spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death. And even though my heart cried out, wretched man that I am, who can set me free? The answer has always been there. 
And your desire has been for us to understand and to know these things. Lift us out of religiousness, Lord. Lift us out of performance. Bring us into life. Bring us into this new creation life. Let the very words of Jesus that were preached that day on that, on that mountain pierce our hearts today. You have heard it said, but I say unto you, there is a greater love that will set you free. I pray for an exclusive devotion, Lord. I pray that self-love, Lord, would be dealt with as only you are able to deal with it. I pray that I would not want to preserve my life, but I'd be willing to lose it. If I've been wronged, and I have been wronged, if I've been spoken of wrongly and misrepresented, and I have been spoken of wrongly and misrepresented, I trust you. If I have been abused, Lord, I trust you. That you, Lord, have even used what has been hurtful. And where someone might say that I have been a victim, I trust you to heal me. And I trust you to use what the evil intended, the enemy intended for evil, to use it for good. Not just for me, but for many other people whom I can encourage and speak truth to. Failed marriages, Lord, that have broken hearts and broken homes. We trust you now, Lord, for new beginnings and joy and hope and more for life, more for life. For marriages that are struggling in this room, in Jesus' name, exclusive devotion and love and honor for one another, O oh God. Let a man see the beauty of his wife and the woman see the glory of her husband as you've intended it to be seen. Yes, God. Thank you, Lord. really jealous for you guys. I'm jealous for my own life. I'm jealous for my family. I'm jealous for this church. I'm jealous for the church. All of us as elders are jealous for the church, for the church in this city. God has to do something new. Amen? It's like there's got to be life. It can't just be status quo and then struggling through and pretending and failing and living with something less than what God intended. But we are human. And we are all in process, and we all have areas that we deal with. But let's believe God for more. Amen? Let's just believe God for more. And may the Spirit of God encourage you this week as you go through the week. May the rest of this day you allow the Lord to speak to you and minister to you and encourage you and to know that he is with you. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.